We're in a series on the book of Nehemiah, and today we're looking at Nehemiah chapter six. We're not gonna read the entire chapter. We'll read two verses, and they are as follows. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The Word of God. God. You may be seated. As has already been said, happy uh, Labor Day weekend. I almost said Memorial Day weekend. It feels like it. Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, to those of you who did not travel, uh, welcome here. And uh, wondering how your Labor Day weekend is going? It's going okay? Uh, did you feel the earthquake today? Yes. Pastor Ben, do you get earthquake alerts also? Do they have earthquakes in Canada? No, no. So add that one to your app as well, Pastor Ben. Uh, I was sitting in the office and felt this shaking, and I ran out in the office while I was working my sermon. Pastor Steve was there. I was like, should we run out? He's like, nah, it's all right. <laughs> That's California for you. How's your Labor Day weekend going? It's hot. Uh, here is a picture of what most of us probably feel like doing. This is our cat, Beatrix. Leilani took a picture of Beatrix enjoying, I guess not enjoying, surviving the heat. Uh, and that's probably how most of us want to be. We're grateful to Lauren and Steve and the rest of our team that our air conditioning is working. Yes. Please continue to support us in tithes and offerings. <laughs> um, how's your Labor Day weekend going? I love this quote that I found the other day. It says the following, the first five days after the weekend are the hardest. <laughs> is that true? If that's true to your experience, please raise your hands. If it's not true to your experience, you're not human. <laughs> the first five days after the weekend are the hardest. The six is just great. And when we think of the book of Nehemiah and this character, this leader, Nehemiah, as we're in the series on the book of Nehemiah, I kind of think of the first uh, five days of the weekend are the hardest. As Nehemiah and crew are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, I think in his own mind, he's probably saying the last few days of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem are the hardest. Tough for him. They're rebuilding. And... Let us just do a very quick review of the book of Nehemiah. By the way, if you didn't know, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are in fact one book and somehow it got split up, written probably by the same community, same authors, same editors, to tell the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And in Ezra chapter one through six, we find Zerubbabel. Is that how you say it in English? I don't know, in my language it's Zerubbabel. Um, Zerubbabel. Shouldn't say it. Z, rebuilds the temple. So this person rebuilds the temple because the temple had been destroyed uh, when the Persians came and uh, uh, took, took the Israelites, uh, the Jewish nation, into exile. So the temple was destroyed a long time ago, and now the king says, hey, rebuild your temple. That's Ezra 1 through 6. Then Ezra 7 through 10, Ezra comes onto the scene, a much easier word to say, and Ezra comes to teach about the law and to rebuild 
pardon me, rebuild not only the temple, but to rebuild the community by going back to the law of the prophets. And then we find Nehemiah coming on the scene. And there's overlap in their time over here. Sometimes Ezra is in Jerusalem, sometimes Nehemiah, sometimes they're both here. But in Nehemiah, we find chapters 1 through 7, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was left in ruins. People uh, had come back from exile. Some were there who did not go into exile and remained. But the walls were broken down, and so they had to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah had it in his heart, this vision to rebuild the walls. But then we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 through 12, which is coming next in the next couple of weeks, we see now after the temple is rebuilt, after the community is rebuilt with the law, and after the walls are built, there's a, re- a spiritual rebuilding that happens. And Nehemiah opens the word and instructs the people on God's ways. But the interesting thing is that in all three of these movements with Zerubbabel and with Ezra and with Nehemiah, each of these stories end not quite in the uh, happy-go-lucky kind of way that we think. There's a challenge at the end and it ends in strange, weird, awkward circumstances. That is the summary of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we are in the series Nehemiah, and today we are in Nehemiah chapter 6. Earlier in Nehemiah, we heard Pastor Iki preach on that, where uh, Nehemiah, when he came to Jerusalem, he faced opposition from the people in the city and without the city. He faced opposition uh, against the building of the wall, and uh, the enemies were mocking the workers and trying to discourage them. In fact, there were military, military threats, threats of violence, of fighting. Uh, against the people as they were trying to rebuild as well. And now we see in Nehemiah chapter 6, there is further opposition to building a wall. Nehemiah is coming close to finishing the wall, but the last days of building this house seems to be the most, the wall seems to be the most difficult. And now the threats go from where earlier the threats were all about the community and uh, uh, more of a communal thing. Now in chapter 6, the The threats from his enemies become personal. And that is what chapter 6 is all about. Personal threats against Nehemiah. And so we see, this is a a strange kind of chapter. And uh, we're all just going to hang together on this. There are three challenges that confronts Nehemiah. He has threats and lies that are being thrown his way, and the three challenges are, and we're going to go through each of them, and then we'll be done. The challenge of diversion, the challenge of falsehood, and the challenge of religious compromise. These three threats and lies that are being thrown against him happen in three little instances here, and we're going to follow those. The first one is the challenge of diversion. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 1 through 4 says the following. Now when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah and to the Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies. They were all mentioned in the earlier chapters. They're back again. Uh, When it was reported that I had built the wall and that there was no gap left in it. Though up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. So there really was a gap. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying... Come and let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, 
I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? They sent me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. Interesting. Nehemiah was tempted by the offer to let us meet together with these important leaders, nations around them, to forge a common agreement, maybe offering peace, compromise, and prosperity. There was opposition up until now, and maybe what they're trying to do is um, bring peace and compromise together. We all like things to go our way, Nehemiah does too, and when we are offered an opportunity to reach our goals, it is hard to resist things that will help us make things go our way. But the cost of such a deal is not always apparent. We must reckon this is the reason we must clarify our purposes and mission. Otherwise, the enemy will creep in with compromise requiring less than what God wants for us. So if Nehemiah did not accept this offer, then they would ruthlessly persist in knocking him down and out of his position until he and his family and the community caused him to drop out, give up, stop building the wall, and lose out. The easy way out, so it seems, is for Nehemiah to meet with these surrounding who used to be enemies, but now friendly, apparently. So here are the great leaders of these three neighboring countries. They could build a coalition. He could find some support among the leaders. But, and a refusal to meet with them meant facing increasing opposition and threats from them. Some of them wide open, in the open. But we see here in this first part that Nehemiah is sharply focused He's persistently focused. He knew what he wanted to do, and he did it. He wouldn't be sidetracked by things that sounded good, but was not directed from God. He says, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down to you. Why should I leave my work and come down to meet with you? Anyone doing the work of God must contend with a 100 different worthy causes. And a hundred things that might look good and actually may be good, but these things are not what you and I are called to do at that particular time, like Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an example of a leader and a person confronted with challenges that has persistent focus on God and God's task at hand, keeping distractions as far away as possible. So as I think about this first story, this for, first happening event here, I think it is important as we are confronted with threats and lies, confronted with challenges in our life, whatever our building and our work is, the first learning from Nehemiah is that we need to know our why. Nehemiah knew his why. Why are you doing what you're doing? So in the face of diversion and distraction, what you are doing is important, but why you are doing something is more important and will bring energy and focus and clarity. Nehemiah knew his why, rebuild the city, but bigger than that, rebuild the people who lived in exile. His why was that exile is not the end of the story for God's people. 
Nehemiah knew his why. There's a story by the leadership guru John Maxwell. He tells of a man who came across three bricklayers busy at work. The man went to these bricklayers and he went to the first bricklayer and asked him, what are you doing? And the first bricklayer said, I am laying bricks. Then the man went to the second bricklayer and he asked the same question, what are you doing? And he said, I'm putting up a wall. Then the man went to the third uh, bricklayer, asked the same question, what are you doing? And his response was, I am building a cathedral. Know your why. Three different workers can do the exact same task, but for very different reasons. The first uh, may have labored exclusively for a paycheck. He saw his work exactly as that, a task that needed to be completed regardless of the outcome, and when the bell rang, he was out the door. The second bricklayer was likely motivated by a sense of completion and was proud that his bricklaying would result in the construction of a beautiful wall. Perhaps he would add a few extra minutes here and there in order to see his goal through to completion. But the third bricklayer was no doubt driven by a deep desire to fashion a religious structure that would enhance worship and bring glory to God. Every brick was a step towards that grandiose vision and aspiration and no doubt such a person would do whatever was required of them in order to see this glorious visualization come to life. Know your why. Nehemiah is an example of a leader who knows his why. Leaders who know their why know what they, uh, sorry, let me say again. Us, we all in our lives know, if we know why we are doing something, we find it much easier to get the help we need and to inspire the people around us. When we know our why, our energy is contagious and we can remain focused sharply on the goal. And so for people who know their why, they are easily trusted because they're mission-driven and doing things for the right reasons. Nehemiah is tempted to be diverted and distracted, but he says, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Nehemiah knows his why. The second challenge that is thrown to Nehemiah is the challenge of what I call falsehood. The challenge of falsehood. Verse five, the story continues. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time, remember they sent letters four times, for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. By the way, the open letter now means everybody is gonna be able to hear and read it. They sent an open letter in their hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, <laughs> that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to this report, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, there is a king in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these words. See what's happening? Spreading false rumors about a rebellion so come, therefore, and let us confer together. Then I sent to him, says Nehemiah, saying, no such things as you say have been done. 
You are inventing them out of your own mind. You're crazy. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. The first threat to Nehemiah was one of diversion. The second is one of falsehood. Sanballat sent his fifth letter as an open letter because he is well aware of the possibility that popular sentiment will stand behind a claim to restore an independent Judah, and he uses it to launch an accusation that Nehemiah's planning a rebellion and aiming to be king of Judah. And so we can see the enemies leaking such information to the emperor, and the emperor, by confirming the rumors in the town, would confirm the need to eliminate Nehemiah, to challenge his own authority, and the wall would not be built anymore. So as I think about this and Nehemiah's response, in the first threat, as we are face challenges and threats, we need to know our why. In this instance, I think we need to know ourself. Another word for knowing who you are or knowing yourself is integrity. The quality of being honest with yourself and having strong principles. Sanballat had hoped that Nehemiah would follow the, the logical action against the rumors and falsehoods, and that is to give in to ambition, opportunistic maneuvering, and dedicated to self-preservation. But not, uh, Nehemiah refused to do all these th things and to become distracted by this ploy of politics, and he kept his devotion to God. Nehemiah knew his why, but he also knew his own self. He had integrity, and we don't know the process for how he came to this. It's not uh, written in Scripture, but he clearly had done internal work of knowing who he is. And for people of faith, we would say whose we are. And so, as we are confronted with challenges and falsehoods and things thrown our way, we have to do the important internal work of knowing who we are, of growing in an understanding of ourselves, our values, our interests, our temperament, our mission, our goals, our strengths, our growth areas, our pleasures, our lives. When we are confronted by the lies of falsehoods, standing firm in our integrity is where the work is at. That is what Nehemiah teaches us. Many of us live paralyzed by the fear of what others are saying about us or that we, or what people might be saying about us. Instead, according to Nehemiah, we should forget that and ignore it, which is a difficult thing to do. When Sanballat accused Nehemiah, the accusations were false. If a thousand nations reported these false accusations, it would not make it true. A popular lie may be more dangerous, but it is not truer because it's popular. Nehemiah was tempted to care more about what other people were saying and thinking about him than the task at hand. But praise God, Nehemiah does not give in to that temptation. You see, the challenge is when we don't know ourselves, we tend to be people pleasers. I am a recovering and working on it people pleaser. And the holistic psychologist 
says it this way, people-pleasing, she changes it to it's the attempt to control how people view us. Wow, there's a lot of people-pleasers out here. I'm glad to be with you. Nehemiah is tempted to control what other people think of him, but it's out of his hands. And somehow we still try and control what other people say or think about us. People pleasing looks like saying yes to everything or being the person who's always there and anything that's needed will do. People pleasing really comes from codependency dynamics uh, where we gain our uh, sense of self through what other people think of us. And this usually means not having any boundaries and neglecting our own needs and our own work at hand. Nehemiah knew his why, Nehemiah knew his own self, that he did not have to trust his identity to what other people think of him, but what God thinks of him. Knowing your why will help you know your who, who you are, as you ground your identity in God and not in that of others. While you cannot control rumors or falsehoods, you can commit to your own narrative with confidence and integrity. The third story is the challenge of religious compromise. Again, a little bit of a strange story, but I guess when lies are being thrown your way, it is strange. Verse 10 says the following. One day when I, Nehemiah, went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Em, who was confined to his house, he said, let us meet together. A lot of meetings happening here. They didn't have Zoom at that time. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, the sanctuary, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, tonight they are coming to kill you. How do you know that? But I said, should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived or discerned, some translation says, then I perceived and saw that God had not sent him at all, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this purpose, to intimidate me and to make me sin by acting this way, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Side note, he doesn't take revenge, he gives it to God. This is a strange story, and once again, it is a trap to discredit Nehemiah, this leader in Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls. It's a trap to tempt him into prioritizing his own safety over against that of the community. There's also a hint of a little bit more than only that, although that is already a big thing. The phrase, close the doors of the temple, we may take literally, but as I've been researching, some scholars say this could be interpreting as forming an alliance with the religious leaders and Tobiah and Sanballat, who are the rich foreign rulers, by foregoing building the walls of Jerusalem and then finding his safety in the already existing completed walls of the temple, and in that way, 
forming alliance with these leaders and leading a rebellion and turning against his own people. It is a complicated thing that's happening here. But whether it is personal safety or an alliance with an enemy, Tobiah and Sunbalat are using religion to threaten and persuade Nehemiah. The temple is sanctuary. The temple is the seed of God's authority. The temple and the sanctuary is the heart of Jewish life and faith. It sounds good to go to the temple. It sounds religious. Let us meet at the temple. Go to be the sanctuary to be saved. It's called sanctuary after all. Let us meet together in the house of God. The enemies knew how to use religious talk, but it was still a trap. If Nehemiah had believed this religious talk, he would have sinned and given others something to find fault with him and discredit him. Levitical law states that only priests are allowed into the temple. So obviously Shemaiah was trying to get Nehemiah to break the law. I love the way how Redpath summarizes this scene. Shemaiah seeks to persuade Nehemiah in an easygoing, compromising religion that will shirk persecution, that will carry no cross, and that is governed by fear of the opinions of other people. Did you hear that? Nehemiah is confronted with a religious compromise and in all these confrontations, he knows he's why, he knows he's self, and he knows he's faith. The third step in confronting threats and lies is to know your faith. Nehemiah knew the law, he, he knew uh, the what of the law, but more importantly, he knew the why of his faith. At the heart of his faith, Faith was the God of Israel who said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. A God who fosters and enlivens community and care for the neighbor. Nehemiah was tempted to put himself and his own needs before that of the community by going in the temple and meeting with them and being safe. But he knew and was committed to his faith. So when we are confronted with religious compromise, it is important for us to know our faith. I think for many of us, knowing our faith can sometimes amount to what religious uh, scholars call borrowed faith, where our faith is the product of borrowing our faith from our parents or our upbringing or our church or Sabbath schools or something like that. Studies show that many people don't move past borrowed faith. This can be dangerous when we're confronted with outside threats and religious compromise. And so the struggle is for us to know our faith and what our faith really consists of. There's a moment in North American Christianity right now where there's a lot of talk of deconstructing faith. This is nothing new, it's happened for millennia actually, but it's gained some momentum among younger people and evangelical world that is really troubled by this in the last few years, specifically in light of the pandemic. Many fear this feeling that when people deconstruct their faith, it means that they will leave Christianity. But it's important to note that deconstruction is not the same as deconversion. Deconstruction is not the same as deconversion. While everyone who deconverts from Christianity probably deconstructs first, not everybody who deconstructs deconverts. 
This is a crucial distinction. Now, we don't know Nehemiah's process for owning his own faith and discovering it, but I'm thinking about this deconstruction that's happening and the, the trouble that it causes the evangelical world. Kerry Niehaut says the following five reasons for why young people are currently deconstructing their faith. We can talk a lot about this, I'm just gonna quickly mention them. Number one, trust in large institutions is declining all across the board. The church is a large institution. Why are people deconstructing their faith? We live in a more diverse, accessible, and mobile world. We know the stories, lives, faith of many other people and other religions and other nations and other groups of people who seem to be good and doing good in the world. Number three, high-performing Christians are simply burning out. A lot of the most active Christian leaders have stepped down from leadership positions because they're burned out by faith and young people are looking at that and saying, if they give up, why, do we, why don't we? Number four, the prideful prioritization of conformity over unity. When we're thinking each Christian faith needs to be exactly the same. And number five, reason for why people are deconstructing faith is the acceptance of political idolatry and conspiracy theories in the Christian church. Nice. People pleasers and people who don't like that, number five. I love you all. The heart of deconstruction is a response to the church that hasn't positioned itself as a redemptive counterculture that holds itself accountable. That's the summary of all of this. If the path you're on isn't making you a more generous, compassionate, hopeful, and merciful person, then the de destination isn't worth your journey. Deconstruction, my friends, is for the sake of reconstruction. It has been happening for millennia. Just as Nehemiah builds the walls of Jerusalem, we continue to build and grow our faith, constantly asking questions, interrogating, while constantly trusting and loving. Nehemiah is confronted with re religious uh, compromise. And if he does not know his faith, he will go down the deconstruction road and out of trust in God. But he knows his faith. Nehemiah does not give us clues for how he did that, but it is clear that he knows his faith and is committed. So those are the three challenges, the three threats. And then we see this beautiful two verses that we read for our scripture reading. We'll read it again, verse 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. The walls of Jerusalem, by the way, had been crumbled for over a century. Nehemiah, who knows his why, who knows his self, and who knows his faith, with God's help and the help of the community, rebuilds the walls in 52 days. And then it says, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Time is short, but I'll just say one line to summarize this. The best way to silence critics is to see your vision to completion. <laughs> 
The best way to silence critics is to see your vision to completion through knowing your why and knowing yourself and knowing your faith. That is what we are called to as a community. The walls were in ruin for 100 years and they were rebuilt in 52 days. The interesting thing as I was studying this passage is that the entire chapter, the theme of fear runs throughout it. I don't know if you caught it. I did put the word, uh, anytime we found the word fear in yellow when we were reading. But Ruben, if you go to the next slide, we can see it here. As the story unfolds through this chapter, fear is at the very heart of it. Six verse two, Nehemiah says, they intended to do me harm. And then in the next story, 6-9, he said they all wanted to frighten us. And then in the third story, they wanted to make me afraid. We didn't read verse 19, but by the way, after the walls are successfully built, you would think, done and dusted, let's celebrate. The celebration happens much later, because guess what? Right after uh, this, this statement that the, the walls were built in 52 days, Tobiah, the enemy, is again added, writing letters to intimidate him. The work is not always done. The work is done every single day. And so we see fear is at the very heart of what the enemies tried to instill in Nehemiah. But Nehemiah resisted by knowing his why, knowing his self, and knowing his faith. And that resulted now in a reversal where we see in verse 16, all the nations around us were afraid for they perceived this was the work of God. An interesting reversal of fear in this chapter. And then we go to chapter seven and it says the following. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, that hole was closed, thank you, now when I had done this and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani charge over Jerusalem along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So if you go to the next slide, Ruben, you'll see as we look at this chapter, fear of people is at the heart of it and it's contrasted with fear of God. And when we think fear, we don't think fear afraid of God, but fear in honoring and worshiping God. So it is fear of the people versus the fear of God. And in the heart of this rebuilding process, as we navigate the, the temptation of others versus what God calls us to do, Nehemiah is this leader who embodies what it means to know himself. What it means to know his why and what it means to know his face. I love the way that Bob Goff says it. Find a couple people, find a couple safe people in your life. They won't tell you what to do. They'll remind you about who you already are. Then go be that safe person for someone else. Live undistracted. God is the safe person the church should be the safe community. You and I should be the safe people, not only to our tribe, but to all the world. And that is what Nehemiah is called to be. In closing, friends, I don't know what YouTube throws on your uh, algorithm. I have somehow been 
watching uh, a pilot, an uh, airline pilot. His YouTube channel is called 74, I think. Crew 74 or something like that. Anyways, I've been watching this pilot debrief all kinds of pilot situations that happened. Crashes or calls between the tower and the pilots that were wrong or bad and all these kind of things. It's really interesting. And then as this goes, you click the next and the next and the next. I'm not alone in this, right? And then I came across again the story of Sully Sullenberger. You all remember that story. Captain Sully Sullenberger uh, on the U.S. Airways flight 1549 on June 15, 2009. They're taking off from LaGuardia at New York. And as they were taking off, I, I forget the exact time, but in a matter of less, I think it was about a minute, less than two minutes, a flock of birds hit their engines. And a massive airplane does not stand a chance against a flock of birds, apparently. Don't let that make you not fly. There are many other videos I've watched to make me go like, oh, flying is safe. Um, so they go up and they're confronted with this challenge. They're confronted with this challenge of safety. And they have very little time because I forget there are 1,200 cruising altitude and they just cleared the bridge over the, the Hudson. And you remember the Hudson River is there. Um, and in that moment, Captain Sully Sullenberger and uh, his uh, second-in-command need to quickly think and act, what are they going to do? If you've seen the movie Sully, also there were some challenges with the authorities afterwards thinking maybe they could have made it safely to the airport to land. But in that moment, Sully needed to know his why and know his self and know his faith. He had to act like that to protect the community in his care. And he knew by instinct and experience that he could not make it because there were lots of buildings around. And so the only option available to him to save the souls on board, I, lear I learned that that's sort of how many souls on board, the 154 or five souls on board. The only way to keep everyone safe was to land on the Hudson. And so I spent more time than I should reading and watching about Sully Sullenberger and I was just amazed at this man. And the thing that really um, spoke to me, <laughs> strangely enough, is when they asked him in all the late night shows, they asked him, do you see yourself as a hero? He said, no. Of course, then you go like, heroes never say they're heroes. But he said, no, I'm not a hero. And he also does not call this a miracle. People refer to this as the miracle of the Hudson. He's like, I'm not a hero and this was not a miracle. We were doing what we were trained to do. And it made me think, here's a captain with 155 souls on board confronted with challenges coming his way. A leader. But because this leader knew his why, there are souls on board. I have to keep them safe. Because he knew his self I've been trained for this. Yes, it's been in flight simulations. And even in the flight simulation, I never did a water landing. But I've been trained for this. I have 20,000 hours of experience. He knew his self. And he knew his faith. He knew that this plane was designed to hopefully withstand impact. And that if he did it safely, and he did it correctly, according to all the procedures, that maybe life 
can be saved. And we know the story of the plane landing in the Hudson and just the crazy thing that happened that this big Boeing lands on the water. So I think of Nehemiah, I think of Sully, I think of my life and your life and our lives as a community. There are so many challenges that come our way. Earthquakes, heat, our integrity is called in question, people gossip about us, we struggle in our relationships, we struggle at school perhaps, we can't make ends meet financially, you name it. Challenges come our way. Praise God for Nehemiah as an example of how to stand in the face of challenge. To know your why, to know yourself, to know your faith, to know your God, and to love. Amen.